Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 116. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on May 19th, 2023, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. So, as we announced last time, we're going to do a meetup for listeners on June 1st in Austin. If you are able to join me at some reasonably convenient spot in Austin for an ice-cold beverage of choice that evening starting around 6 p.m., please let me know by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or via the website or by direct message on Twitter or Facebook. If I can get some estimate of the number of attendees that will help me pick the right spot, I hope you can make it. The one we did in Washington was a lot of fun. This is our third episode on the Pequot War of 1636-38. to Truth be told, I hadn't intended on devoting this much time to the Pequot War, but as you have heard, I follow my muse in such matters, so here we are. Needless to say, you'll find this episode more enriching if you've recently listened to the last two. At the end of the last episode, in February and March 1637, The Pequots and their allies, the Western Neantics, had effectively besieged Saybrook Fort, the palisaded English trading post at the mouth of the Connecticut River. To support Lion Gardner, commander of the fort, the Connecticut River town sent Captain John Mason with six men to reinforce it, and John Winthrop sent another 20 men from Massachusetts Bay under the command of John Underhill. Underhill, you will recall, had been the man sent to arrest Roger Williams in Salem in late 1635, precipitating Williams' long, cold winter in the woods with the Narragansetts. Gardner, Mason, and Underhill would be the principal English captains during the Pequot War, and all three would write accounts of the war that still survive to this day. As we will see, Mason and Underhill in particular would do things that would shock the modern conscience, and yet they would proudly confess it in their own narratives. They did this not because they were sociopaths or because they believed the audience for their writing were sadists. Rather, they did these things and recounted them without embarrassment because they and their readers looked at war differently than you or I would do. And yet... As alien as their perspective is to me, and I suspect virtually everybody listening to this podcast, it's not entirely gone from our world even today, because their view of war is the one that had prevailed for almost all of human experience before 1600. Generalizing a bit here, it was really only in the 1500s that there were the first murmurings among philosophers and theologians of the Eastern Hemisphere that perhaps extreme cruelty in war was morally problematic. Unfortunately, that thinking had not really taken hold among the people who actually fought European, Asian, and African wars. Curiously, the tribes of Northeastern North America actually had, in some respects, a more restrained vision of war than the civilized you can't see my scare quotes, and technically advanced nations from across the Atlantic, even if we take into account their use of torture. 
On April 23, 1637, Pequots attacked the English settlement of Weathersfield on the Connecticut River a few miles south of the Dutch Fort Hope and the English town of Hartford. They killed six English men working in the fields, three women, 20 cows, and a mare. Perhaps they'd taken to heart Gardner's claim that cattle and lazy English women would be useless to them. They did, however, take away two English girls. The Pequots next appeared in canoes across the river from Fort Saybrook. They put masts in some of the canoes and hung English clothes on them instead of sails, which were probably more useful for their psychological effects on the English than for catching wind. The English shot their cannon at a range of about a mile and actually took out the front of one of the canoes, motivating the Pequots to scramble onto the opposite shore. The English only later learned that the captured maids, scare quotes, etc., were in one of the canoes. Underhill later wrote that, quote, it was a special providence of God it did not hit them. For then should we have been deprived of the sweet observation of God's providence in their deliverance. All about God, as usual. On May 16th, in response to the attack at Weathersfield, the Connecticut General Court at Hartford declared an offensive war against the Pequots. Out of a total English population of about 250, they rounded up 90 men, virtually every male who could carry a weapon, and put John Mason in command. Each soldier was to provide himself with a pound of gunpowder, four pounds of shot, and a musket, and a barrel of powder per man to be issued from the apparently considerable stores at Saybrook. They requisitioned the shallop of the merchant William Pynchon, the ancestor of the great 20th century novelist Thomas Pynchon, by the way, to take the new soldiers downriver. Meanwhile, the Massachusetts Bay had already mobilized. On April 18th, even before the attack at Weathersfield, they had responded to the plea of Lion Gardner to reinforce Saybrook beyond the 20 men they'd already sent. The Bay raised 160 men and petitioned Plymouth to send 50 more. Bradford and company at first refused, largely on the basis of their belief that John Endicott had started a war they didn't want, but also because of various grievances against the Bay, including its encroachment on their trade with the tribes. Plymouth would eventually reverse this decision under pressure, but only after it was too late to get their men into the fight. In contrast to the Pilgrims of Plymouth, Sachem Uncas of the Mohegans was eager to contribute to the war on the Pequots. Recall that the Mohegans had once been part of the Pequot Confederacy, but it split away before Europeans arrived in their territory. Uncas had put himself up to be Grand Sachem of the Pequots when the Dutch perfidiously murdered Tabatum. But Tabatum's son Sassicus had gotten the nod instead of Uncas. The English did not much trust Uncas. He had problems with the truth, or, to put it a little more favorably, would spread disinformation if it suited his purpose. It was Uncas who had persuaded John Brewster, the agent from Plymouth's trading post on the Connecticut, to warn Boston of Pequot war plans back in 1636, when there were almost certainly no such plans. To test Uncas, Lion Gardner demanded proof he would join them when the shooting began. 
He proved himself by reporting to Saybrook with the heads of five Pequots and one living prisoner, a fellow named Kiswiss, who had once lived among the English at Saybrook. Now taunting his erstwhile friends, Kiswiss shouted that they durst not kill a Pequot. Gardner turned him back over to the Mohegans, who tied one of his legs to a post, and twenty men with a rope tied to the other pulled him in pieces. John Underhill put Kiswiss out of his misery with a shot to the head. Events were moving fast in May. A Dutch ship sailed into the Connecticut River, aiming to trade with the Pequots. Gardner would not let it pass, fearful that Dutch trade goods could be beaten into metal arrowheads. The Dutch captain offered a deal. If Gardner let him up to trade, he would retrieve the two English girls, and so he did. But not before taking several Pequots hostage and threatening to drown them in the ocean if Sassicus didn't release the girls. The girls made it back to Saybrook after a short visit with the Dutch director general Van Twiller, who had insisted on questioning them before they were returned to the English. At Saybrook, the girls reported that the Pequots had 16 guns with some powder and shot and had asked them to make more gunpowder. The Indians were disappointed that these girls, roughly 12 and 16, did not know how to make gunpowder. I have to say, my dad taught me to make old-school black gunpowder by the time I was 10, but that was when you could get saltpeter in any pharmacy. can't remember why you could get saltpeter in any pharmacy, but you could. Anyway, the English had learned that neither girl had been seduced or raped, which perhaps surprised them. They did not know then, but we know now, that Indians of that region did not rape the women they captured, a practice that remained widespread in old world warfare. Indeed, the Pequots had apparently taken the girls from place to place, giving them a tour of their fortifications and wigwams and such, encouraging them to be merry, in Underhill's account. There are a lot of debits and credits in sorting out the relative cruelty and the warfare of different cultures, then as now. Which is not to say that all cultures were equally cruel, then or now. By mid-May, the English had concentrated their forces at Saybrook, which, friendly reminder for those of you not intimate with the map of Connecticut, was to the west of the main Pequot village at Mystic. That put the English between the main population of Pequots, just to their east, and the western Neantics to their west. Mason had been ordered by the General Court of Connecticut to land at the mouth of the Thames River, just south of today's New London. The problem was, Sassicus was almost certainly expecting just such an attack. Mason, Underhill, and Gardner conceived of sailing east past the Thames to Narragansett Bay, rounding up some soldiers from Sachem, Mayantanami, and surprising Sassicus by marching overland from his east. The problem was those pesky orders to land directly on the mouth of the Thames. Mason, Underhill, and Gardner were reluctant to disobey those orders without some greater reason, so they did as any good Puritan would do. They consulted God. Or rather, they asked the Reverend Stone to consult God. The next morning, the good Reverend reported that he had not only sought the guidance of the Almighty, he had obtained it and by prayer determined that the indirect approach would meet with God's favor. So they had that going for him. Mason also made a more practical observation in his narrative. Quote, 
The farthest way about is sometimes the nearest way home. I shall make bold to present this as my present thoughts in this case. In matters of war, those who are both able and faithful should be improved, and then bind them not up to too narrow a compass. For it is not possible for the wisest and ablest senator to foresee all accidents and occurrences that fall out in the management and pursuit of a war. Nay, although possibly he might be trained up in military affairs, and truly much less can he have any great knowledge who hath but little experience therein. Back to me. This reminds me of a famous quotation by Roman general Lucius Aemilius Paulus in the second century BCE, which I'm going to read here because it expresses more awesomely the point Mason made in his narrative. And anyway, I like digressions like this. Quote, In every circle, and truly at every table, there are people who lead armies into Macedonia, who know where the camp ought to be placed, what posts ought to be occupied by troops, when and through what pass that territory should be entered, where magazines should be formed, how provisions should be conveyed by land and sea, and when it is proper to engage the enemy, and when to lie quiet. They not only determine what is best to be done, but if anything is done in any other manner than what they have pointed out, they arraign the council as if he were on trial before them. These are great impediments to those who have the management of affairs. I am not one of those who think that commanders ought in no time to receive advice. On the contrary, I should deem that man more proud than wise, who regulated every proceeding by the standard of his own single judgment. What then is my opinion? The commanders should be counseled chiefly by persons of known talent, by those who have made the art of war their particular study and whose knowledge is derived from experience by those who are present at the scene of action, who see the enemy, who see the advantages that occasions offer, and who, like people embarked in the same ship, are sharers of the danger. If, therefore, anyone thinks himself qualified to give advice respecting the war which I am to conduct, let him not refuse the assistance of the state, but let him come with me, into Macedonia. He shall be furnished with a ship, a tent, even his traveling charges will be defrayed. But if he thinks this is too much trouble and prefers the repose of a city life to the toils of war, let him not on land assume the office of a pilot. The city in itself furnishes abundance of topics for conversation. Let it confine its passion for talking to its own precincts, and rest assured that we shall pay no attention to any counsels, but such as shall be framed within our camp. Shorter Mason and Paulus, civilian control of the military is one thing, and second-guessing by amateurs is quite another. Both of them would have deplored Twitter. The Lord's sanction notwithstanding, the one disadvantage of the indirect approach was that it would put the English fighting force out of position to defend the settlements along the Connecticut River, which had now been reduced to women, children, and men incapable of fighting. They were sitting ducks. If, for instance, the western Neantics decided to attack north rather than come to the relief of the Pequots, 
They could kill or capture everybody. So Mason sent 20 of the Connecticut men back up the river to guard against just that eventuality. Then the rest of them, including Uncas and his Mohegan soldiers, got on the various ships and sailed west to Narragansett Bay, arriving there on May 20th, 1637, exactly 386 years ago tomorrow. Mayantanami was, as it happened, irritated with the English. He had proposed to the magistrates of the Bay Colony that the Narragansetts be given the charge of fighting the Pequots, asking only for transportation on English ships. The Bay had rejected his proposal, perhaps concerned that he would not vanquish the Pequots as thoroughly as they were hoping to do. He did, however, grant Mason an underhill passage through his territory. They headed west, reaching a main village of the eastern Neantics, who were notionally allied with the Narragansetts and the English, on May 24th. The eastern Neantics were not nearly as hospitable as the English expected, not letting them enter their palisade. This made the English commanders very nervous, for they knew that the eastern Neantics had once been tributaries of the Pequots, and that there had been significant intermarriage between the two groups. If a pro-Pequot Neantic tipped off the Pequots that the English were coming over land, the attackers would lose the advantage of surprise. Having been excluded from the village and now a bit wary, the English posted guards around it and told the residents that nobody would be allowed in or out until the campaign had moved west. The next morning, a large band of Narragansett soldiers arrived and encouraged the eastern Neantics to join them. The Narragansetts formed themselves into a circle, and one by one, each made a solemn vow that they would fight gallantly and proclaimed how many Pequot men they would kill. As the English would learn to their regret, Narragansetts were not particularly committed to vows that they made in such situations. The now much larger army, reinforced by perhaps 500 Narragansett and Eastern Neantic soldiers, marched west toward Mystic. The heat was oppressive, and the men were short of food and water. Several English, laboring in the heat and under the heavy burden of their armor and weapons, passed out. Now in Pequot territory, the previously brave Narragansetts began to desert in large numbers. Mason turned to Sachem Uncas, who still led his band of 70 Mohegans, and sought his assurance that they, at least, would stay true. Uncas said that they would, even if all the Narragansetts deserted. Most of them, but not all of them, did. Now, there were in fact two Pequot forts, Mystic to the east and now quite close, and Wineshocks to the west. The English believed that Sassicus was at Wineshocks and considered bypassing Mystic and striking there, but that would entail several more hours of marching and risk giving away the game. They resolved to camp at the edge of a swamp within earshot of the mystic palisade. They were indeed so close that the night watch heard the Pequot singing. Philip Vincent, who wrote the fourth surviving narrative of the war, described the construction of the Pequot fort at Mystic. Quote, Let me now describe this military fortress, which natural reason and experience hath taught them to erect without mathematical skill or use of iron tool. They choose a piece of ground, dry, and of best advantage, 40 or 50 foot square, but this was at least two acres of ground. 
Here they pitch close together as they can, young trees and half-trees as thick as a man's thigh or calf of his leg. Ten or twelve foot high they are above the ground, and within rammed three foot deep with undermining, the earth being cast up for their better shelter against the enemy's dischargements. Betwixt these palisades are diverse loopholes through which they let flight their winged messengers. The door, for the most part, is entered sideways, which they stop with boughs or bushes as need requireth. The space therein is full of wigwams, wherein their wives and children live with them. These huts or little houses are framed like our garden arbors, something more round, very strong and handsome, covered with close-wrought mats made by their women, of flags, rushes, and hempen threads, so defensive that neither rain, though never so bad and long, nor yet the wind, though never so strong, can enter. The top through a square hole giveth passage to the smoke, which in rainy weather is covered. Back to me. They plan their attack for the next morning, on Friday, May 26th, Taking in the strength of the palisade, the Indians, including even the Mohegans, were afraid to attack and now threatened to desert, but Mason talked them out of it. He asked them to deploy around the perimeter of the fort and not let anybody escape. The English crept forward, resolving to enter the two narrow entrances simultaneously. Their plan, according to Mason, was to fight with swords in close quarters, preserving the valuables within the fort for plunder. Arthur Cave says that Mason's believable in this, insofar as soldiers would be expecting to be paid in part from the spoils of war. Mason led the attack at one entrance, Underhill at the other. Both were blocked with brush, and in the time it took to hack away the obstacles, the Pequots rallied their defense. The English were hit, and in some cases wounded severely. Mason, who was wearing a helmet only because his wife had made him promise that he would, was hit repeatedly in the head by arrows that in every case bounced off the steel. Mason, to his credit, conceded that this was grounds to appreciate his wife. The fighting was brutal, and the fort was so densely packed by buildings that the English couldn't engage with full effectiveness. The Pequot defense stiffened. The hot and dehydrated English were getting tired. Mason decided that the attack would fail unless they changed course. He ran into a wigwam, grabbed a firebrand, and started setting buildings on fire. Other English did the same, and soon the entire village was ablaze. Now let's go to Arthur Cave's gruesome summary of the various narratives. Quote, Captain Underhill then set fire on the south end with a train of powder. The fires of both meeting in the center of the fort blazed most terribly and burnt all in the space of half an hour. Of the trapped Pequots, Underhill wrote, many courageous fellows were unwilling to come out and fought most desperately through the palisades so as they were scorched and burnt with the very flame and were deprived of their arms, the fire burnt their very bowstrings. The Pequots at Fort Mystic, Underhill declared, perished valiantly. But Mason offered a different account of their behavior. The Pequots, he wrote, were most dreadfully amazed. Indeed, such a dreadful terror did the Almighty let fall upon their spirits that they would fly from us 
and run into the very flames where many of them perished. After the fires were set, Mason and Underhill ordered their men to fall off and surround the fort. A number of the Pequots, overcoming their momentary panic, ran through an alley lined with flaming wigwams and regrouped windward of the conflagration. Temporarily out of harm's way, they began pelting at us with their arrows, and we repaid them with our small shot. Another group of 40 Pequots suddenly ran out of the fort and perished by the sword. Others who attempted to escape the flames were shot down. Most of the residents of Fort Mystic were burned alive. Mason estimated that six or seven hundred Pequots were killed that morning. Back to me. For sheer brutality, this was the bloodiest fighting between Europeans and Indians in today's United States since at least 1599, when Spanish, under Don Juan de Añate, the so-called last conquistador, slaughtered 800 or more Pueblo Indians at Acoma Mesa in New Mexico. Long-standing and very attentive listeners may recall that we covered that awful story in an episode called The Rediscovery of New Mexico and the Last Conquistadors, 1580-1610, back in December 2021. Before that, you have to go back to the Soto Expedition's fight with Tascaloosa in Alabama in 1540 for anything comparable to the annihilation of the Pequots at Mystic. No doubt the English, who had long thought themselves superior to the Spanish in their treatment of indigenous Americans, would be unhappy with any comparison to a freaking conquistador. Yet there's no escaping it. And as we shall see, the similarities between Mystic and Acoma do not end with the massacres. The Narragansetts and Mohegans, who had not deserted, were not surprisingly shocked. Underhill recorded that they were horrified by the slaughter at Mystic and complained about the manner of the Englishman's fight because it was too furious and slays too many men. All true. And yet at the same time, even this disapproval served English purposes. For henceforth the Narragansetts, now clearly the most powerful tribe in proximity to the English, would understand the danger of defying them. Lopsided as the attack on Mystic had been, the English force had been much weakened by it. Only two had died, but 20 or more had been wounded out of an original force of about 70. Meanwhile, Sassacus was at large, and there were still hundreds of Pequot soldiers nearby to be reckoned with. The Narragansetts left quickly for their home in the east, leaving the English without guides. Not far east of Mystic, a large contingent of by now enraged Pequots attacked the Narragansetts along the trail. They sent messengers west down the trail to ask for English help. Now let's go to Underhill's account, quote, Then came the Narragansetts to Captain Mason and myself, crying, Oh, help us now, or our men will all be slain. We answered, How dare you crave aid of us when you are leaving of us? in this distressed condition, not knowing which way to march out of the country. But yet, you shall see, it is not the nature of Englishmen to deal like heathens, to requite evil for evil. But we will succor you, myself falling on with 30 men in the space of an hour, rescued their men, and in our retreat to the body, slew and wounded above a 100 Pequots, all fighting men, 
that charged us both rear and flanks. Back to me. The English and the remaining Narragansetts then headed west to Saybrook, spoiling the country as they went and chasing western Neantics who fled into the swamps as they marched. A mere three days after the destruction of Mystic, Wyandotte, the, quote, next brother of the old sachem of Long Island, appeared at Saybrook to ask whether the English were angry with all Indians. Gardner replied that the English were only at war with Indians who had killed English. Wyandotte asked if his tribe could trade with the English, something that would only happen if there were peace between them. And Gardner replied that there could be no trade as long as they sheltered Pequots. They should kill all the Pequots in their midst and send their heads to the English. This Wyandotte's tribe did, and shortly thereafter, a messenger paddled across the sound with a canoe full of Pequot heads. At Wineshocks, the other large Pequot settlement and the current seat of Sassacus, the massacre at Mystic and the subsequent defeat on the trail had crushed the vaunted fighting spirit of the Pequots. In their rage and fury, they turned on the Mohegans living among them, killing all but seven who made their way to Saybrook for refuge. Sassacus tried to rally his people to continue the war, but his credibility had taken a huge hit. Only the continuing loyalty of his deputy sachems saved his life. By early June, the Pequots were in full flight. A hundred or more went to live with the Montauks on Long Island, and 70 surrendered to the Narragansetts, according to Roger Williams. Now to Cave, quote, The largest party numbering several hundred men, women, and children led by Sassacus, Mananato, and most of the other sachems moved westward, hoping to join the Mohawks in New York. Crossing the Connecticut River, they killed the three-man crew of a small shallop bound down river for Saybrook. But one group of about 40 Pequots, after striking out toward the Connecticut River, panicked, turned around, returned to Pequot country, and sought safety in a swamp north of Wineshocks known as Ahomawaki, meaning the owl's nest. As Sassacus moved westward, rumors that he had used his very substantial cache of wampum to buy the support of the Mohawks spread through the Narragansett country. Williams reported that he had received tidings that Mohawks and Pequots have slain many both English and native in Connecticut. These reports were false. Williams thought that the rumor of Pequot-Mohawk cohesion was probably false, but suggested that it would be prudent to send envoys to the Mohawks to secure their adherence to the English. Back to me. Determined to put an end to the Pequots, the Bay Colony raised an additional 120 soldiers and dispatched them under the command of Israel Stoughton and William Trask. The Mohegans and Narragansetts turned Pequot survivors over to Stoughton, who ignored Narragansett entreaties to treat them kindly and executed most of the adult men. The Pequot women and children were enslaved. The most fortunate were handed over to other tribes. Narragansetts received 30, the Massachusetts 3. The remainder were sent to Boston, where many of them were sold to Caribbean slave traders. A few of them ended up on Providence Island off the coast of Nicaragua, a Puritan settlement turned into a haven for pirates. And this would not be the last Pequot sold into slavery. 
As the English captured others who had fled, they were given to allied tribes or sold to the Caribbean. The Spanish at Acoma had also consigned captured Acoma Indians to slavery, although with a term of years, typically 20, rather than lifetime service. Rather than executing the captured males of fighting age, they hobbled them by cutting one of their feet in half. Presumably that both improved the Spanish perception of their own security and reduced the value of enslaving the captured Acoma Pueblos. By July, Stoughton marched his men to Saybrook, where he connected with Mason and 40 soldiers from Connecticut. With Uncas and the Mohegan soldiers, the English moved west to hunt down Sassacus and his followers. The Mohegans moved overland toward New Haven, then known as Quinnipiac, picking off Pequot stragglers. The English sailed to New Haven, hoping to catch Sassacus in a pincer. There they caught a small group of Pequots, who told them that Sassacus and his diminishing band had already moved west of New Haven, but not very far. The English pursued, catching up with the main body of surviving Pequots at the edge of a big swamp. Now to cave, quote, Surrounding the swamp, the English fired into the thicket, hoping to take captives and therefore seeking a means to reduce non-combatant casualties, the commanders determined to offer the Pequots an opportunity to surrender. Thomas Staunton, who had served as gardener's interpreter at Saybrook, called the Indians in the swamp to a parley and assured them that those who were not guilty of killing Englishmen would be spared. During a two-hour lull in the fighting that followed that offer, almost 200 Indians left the swamp and threw themselves on the mercy of the English. But most, perhaps all, of the Pequot warriors refused to surrender. Battle resumed and raged through the night. The English entered the thicket and systematically shot down the Pequots, some of whom drowned in the muck. Winthrop recorded that the Pequots coming up behind the bushes very near our men shot many arrows into their hats, sleeves, and stocks, yet which was a very near miracle, not one of ours was wounded. Toward morning in a heavy fog, a number of the surviving Pequots rushed the English position commanded by Captain Daniel Patrick. Many were cut down by musket fire. Others, wounded in the attempt, were found dead on the trail the following day. Some made good their escape. Back to me. The 200 or so Pequots who surrendered were treated as spoils of war. Most of them were sold into slavery. Sassacus and Mananato and 20 or so Pequot soldiers had escaped and reached the Hudson Valley, the country of the Mohawks and the Dutch depending on who you asked. There was no refuge for them. In early August, traders arrived in Boston with a symbolic message from the Mohawks. The skin and hair of Sassacus, Mananato, and five other Pequot sachems. Sassacus had been killed somewhere near Dover Plains, New York, not far east of today's Poughkeepsie. Almost 30 years after their shocking defeat by Samuel de Champlain at Ticonderoga, the Mohawks knew better than incur the wrath of the Europeans along the coast. All that remained was to mop up. There were straggling Pequots all over Connecticut. Some stayed hidden and some tried to stash themselves with sympathetic Indians of other tribes. The English decreed that any such survivors were forbidden to return to their old villages or use their tribal names. 
In September 1638, the English convened a meeting of their Indian allies at Hartford and hammered out a treaty among them. Pequot soldiers yet surviving were to be executed when encountered, and 89 combatants, women and children, were turned over to each of Mayantanami and Uncas. Most importantly, all tribes signatory to the Treaty of Hartford agreed to submit all intertribal disputes to the English and to abide by their settlement. The English were now both the guarantors and the enforcers of peace among the surviving tribes of southern New England. This came at a price. The Narragansett's Mohegans and Eastern Neantics, the allies of the Bay and the Pequot War, were required to pay an annual tribute of wampum to the English. This was the end of the killing phase of the Pequot War, but it would echo through both New England and New Netherland. There are a couple of sidebars coming on unrelated topics, and then, unless my muse intervenes, which probably will happen some way or another, we will do a short episode on the consequences of the Pequot War. Teaser, it would be bad news for the Muncie Indians of Southern New York and New Jersey, among others. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. You can buy the books I mentioned through the links in the episode notes on the website, get a little commission for that, and follow me on Twitter to stay up to date and sample my musings on mostly history-related topics. Until next time.